The talk is about uh, trying to get to Cold Mountain. I thought it would be a fitting talk to, for tonight. Some of you might have heard of the poet Cloud <coughs> Cold Mountain. His name is Hanshan. And he wrote poems 1,200 <coughs> years ago on rocks, on trees, and on temple walls of China. Uh, the mountains in China called uh, Tiantai Mountains. He said that who takes the cold mountain road takes a road that never ends. The rivers are long and piled with rocks. The streams are wide and choked with grass. It's not the rain that makes the moss slick, and it's not the wind that makes the pines moan. Who can get past the tangles of the world and sit with me in the clouds? Can you imagine walking along and finding a poem like that in New York? <laughs> so who can get past the tangles of this world? So the idea is to try to get to Cold Mountain, but not to try too hard. One of the um, human beings I've been the most deeply touched by in my lifetime is <clears throat> Martin Luther King. And there's a film clip of him in his early years of nonviolent marching for freedom that I'd like to describe. And one time when he was with the poorest of the poor in a church before his first march in Selma, Alabama, uh, this is the part I want to emphasize, <clears throat> he told the people in the church who were in the face of vicious, brutal oppression, uh, to inspire them, he told them that we all have the capacity to die for our freedom. We all have the dignity to die for our freedom. Can you imagine being told that? I mean, he was just a total knockout. Just a total knockout. Do you think of that every moment, every day, that you have the capacity and the dignity to die for your freedom? Because if we tune into that, we're very inspired. So he not only inspired courage and dignity and honesty, but he also inspired patience. At the end of his talk, he would ask over and over, how long? And then he'd answer himself, not long. And you know how great he could speak. He'd say, how long? And until the audience said, not long, he said it himself. So it was, how long, not long, how long, not long, how long? <laughs> there. How long is it going to take for you to be free? <laughs> and do you feel that every day? Not long. Our minds are vast and also the levels of oppression within and without us are vast. To be inspired to die for our freedom each moment to get to Cold Mountain means waking up on every level of reality. And this requires realizing that freedom doesn't depend on conditions. It's not dependent on what our experience is. And we 
forget sometimes that mindfulness practice is a way of life, whether we're here on retreat or in our daily lives. We tend to want to get our degree in freedom. Maybe we have a PhD, and then we think that we'll get out of prison forever and not have to be mindful anymore. But it doesn't work like that. So to reflect on having the capacity to die for our freedom means that we start to realize that we have to investigate every moment, each moment, to wake up. And the question is usually, what is a separate self? How does a temporary moment of oppression occur? A temporary moment of identification is a moment of oppression. Whether it's a temporary moment of identification with attachment or aversion or delusion. Facing identification with experience means that we start to uh, have this capacity to die for our freedom. This question the willingness to die for our freedom is important because each moment is changing. And can we ask ourselves at death, what can we bring with us? Or at birth moment, what is it that we bring with us? Each moment is truly taking birth and passing away. And do we reflect on that at all? What is it that we bring with us from moment to moment or from life to life? And what is it that we can bring with us? And if we contemplate that a bit, it really can cut through (laughs) a lot of our suffering, a lot of what we get attached to or aversive to. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya, and it's from a passage called Difficult to Do. A wanderer asked the venerable Sariputta, Friend, Sariputta, what is difficult to do in this dhamma and discipline? Going forth, friend, is difficult to do in this dhamma and disciplined. What, friend, is difficult to do by one who has gone forth? To find delight, friend, is difficult to do by one who has gone forth. What, friend, is difficult to do by one who has found delight? Practice in accordance with the Dhamma, friend, is difficult to do by one who has found delight. But friend, if a person is practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, would it take one long to become an arahant? And Sariputta answered, not long. (laughs) Not long, friend. How long, friends? Not long. How many times do we ask ourselves, is this pace that I'm going with this process too slow? How long will it take? Does it almost seem impossible at times? The more we get caught up in time and rush and hurry when we try to get to Cold Mountain, the more impossible it will seem. That paradox of time and timelessness only happens if we're lost in a temporary moment of greed, hatred, or delusion. It's amazing. When we're mindful, we have all the time in the world. There's no hurry or rush. And we'll go back and forth between that paradox of being lost or free.
Some of us were lucky to have a teacher named Deepama who was from Calcutta. One time I was with her, uh, her and her daughter, Deepa, and her grandson, uh, taking them to the airport to go back to Calcutta. And she had told me once that uh, she used to be able to go back in time to listen to the Buddhist sermons. And so in the uh, car once, as we were driving, I asked her um, if she could do that. And she laughed. And she said, uh, don't worry, you don't have to do that to be free. And so I know I looked relieved when she said that. But I was intrigued, and I said, but how? I said, I know I might, <laughs> I don't have to do this to be free, but how do you do that? And she said that she would go back mind moment by mind moment through all her lives until she got to the life where she was um, there at the time of a Buddhist sermon and could hear the Buddhist sermon in this life. Now that's not quite like, like us remembering what we had for lunch today. <laughs> but in a way, it's the same. It's exactly the same. We think that sounds extraordinary, but how do you remember what you had for lunch? Can you? Or two days ago? She was remembering beautiful, joyful things. So we couldn't remember anything if past, present, and future weren't available to us at all times, here, now. During my first long retreat with Sera Upandita, partway through the retreat, some really difficult memories that I never knew had happened uh, came up from my early years. And when I would go see Sayadaw, he was not interested in the content or the storyline of my memories at all. And eventually, I needed to work with the storyline. But I really appreciated knowing that I could see those memories from the perspective of earth, air, fire, and water, and thoughts coming and going. It was very liberating. And there was a time um, when I didn't really appreciate his perspective very much about not being interested in the storyline, and I was in a lot of physical pain and mental pain. And I went in to see him, And I was very much identified with my suffering. Uh, And he was so um, happy that I was going through this. And he said, you know, if you keep going on like this, you'll remember all your past and all your future lives. And I was just kind of bent over, just in agony. And it was like, you know, it's like, so what? You know, it's like, if if I'm in this much pain, I don't want to remember anything else. (laughs) Who'd want to remember anything else? Uh, And after I kind of went through that layer, you know, I could appreciate his perspective. When we're in agony, the thought of remembering more is not exactly that comforting. Uh, But when I was seeing it from a different perspective, it was like, awesome. Wow. It's all available. At that time... um, I remember looking at a picture of Ramana Maharshi. Um, There's a picture of him where if you see his eyes and look into them, you'll see that all of the past, present, and future are there. He's seen it all, and he's free. That's what we do. Sometimes this process is very beautiful. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it requires the willingness to face pain in the process of awakening. This is from a book called The Ecology of a Cracker Childhood by Janice Ray. My heart daily grows new foliage, always adding people 
picking up new heartaches like a new coat collects cockle burrs. It gets fuller and fuller until I walk slow as a sloth, carrying all the pain my grandfather and great-grandfather and so many others tried to walk away from. Especially the pain of the lost forest. Sometimes there is no leaving, no looking westward for another promised land. We have to nail our shoes to the kitchen floor and unload the burden of our heart. We have to set to the task of repairing the damage done by and to us. In the stillness, there's that willingness to nail our feet to the kitchen floor and face the pain of generations, face what's in our hearts and wake up. And if it's not our own personal pain, what about the lost forests? There's so much. There's that vast range of joy and sorrow in this world. I have a um, student who's a young adult, and after her first young adult retreat, she came to Burma. And she comes from an extremely loving family. I know her family well. And when she went to Burma, she was 15, and from um, hanging around with the young nuns, I could see her life just being totally transformed. You know, meeting someone her age at 15, who'd done a month-long retreat every year since she was nine, was not like going to high school, you know, in her hometown. It was like just that realization that there was a different way uh, that was possible transformed her. So after that time in Burma, she, the next year she didn't want to come to a young adult retreat. She decided to come to adult retreats after that. And this past year, she came to a metta retreat. And toward the end of the retreat, I got a note from her. And that the spring retreat can tend to be very busy for me. And I was running late. I wrote her a note, and I said, well, come to, I think it was, you know, the, the uh, sitting, come to, to an interview before the late night sitting. And I was running late, and I came up, uh, up the stairs, and she was sitting there, sobbing, you know, and she's young, and I know her well, and she was just sobbing and sobbing. And being, um, having to wait there for me triggered this fear that I didn't like her. And then that fear triggered this tremendous self-hatred. Uh, and at first, you know, when I was um, bringing her into my room and just allowing the tears, my first thought was, but you come from such a loving family. <laughs> How can this happen? Uh, and then I just kind of was sitting there with her and realizing, you know, it's lifetimes. Who knows where that sadness came from or the self-hatred? And it doesn't matter. I mean, the storyline can get us into deeper layers of understanding, which is really important. But ultimately, whether it was five weeks ago or two lifetimes ago, or twenty. What matters is the mindfulness, or the loving-kindness, or compassion that we bring to the experience in the present moment. Can we make a connection with our experience of wise attention in the present moment? That's what's healing. That's what's transforming. We often hear a metaphor for levels of reality, kind of two are the relative level of reality and the absolute level of reality. So the relative level of reality is the conceptual world. The absolute level of reality is closer and closer to the unconditioned. 
we can change levels of reality so quickly. For example, we can go from 70 degrees to below freezing. (laughs) And we can go from noticing the snow, just seeing, to some tremendous associations. There's something so provocative about first snow in the year. It's like, do we remember things, or is it new for us? But it's certainly magical. That change, that transformation, it can go from just seeing to the smell of the snow, to enjoyment, or melancholy, or both. You know, there'll be that flow of change, or maybe we'll notice in those moments just seeing again. We can shift levels of reality very quickly. So I'd like to expand that um, conceptual framework for levels of reality a bit more from uh, relative to absolute uh, by using the metaphor of an elevator for levels of reality. But please know there are a lot of flaws with this metaphor. (laughs) You know, we could be using another metaphor, but I'm using an elevator for the moment. Um, So let's say this elevator has 10 floors, and the top floor is the conceptual world. And the bottom floor, now let's say there's the first floor, and then there's no floor. The no floor is the unconditioned or the absolute level. Uh, Now I'm putting some floors in here that I might not even describe, but just to give you a sense that uh, if I ring this bell, all the levels of reality from no floor to to tenth floor will be here. How many are you aware of? The other night, I was watching the sunset after um, after it set. It was beautiful, um, and I was remembering that when I was raising my sister's three children when they were young, I used to drag them to watch the sunset every night for years um, because I liked to watch the sunset. I was very attached to watching the sunset. And I used to figure, since I was doing <laughs> all this stuff with the kids, that the least they could do was come to me, come with me to watch the sunset every night. Um, and the middle child was not that impressed with this daily activity. And as she got older and bolder, uh, I think my the youngest child was probably about two or three by then, so she was probably about six. Uh, and we went. It was a long walk as well. I used to take them to this dump to watch the sunset, which (laughs) was the best view of the sunset. And I was in my, you know, joyful, happy place of watching the sunset, and I was just saying to them, commenting yet again, how wonderful it was (laughs) to be watching the sunset. And she looked at me, and she, you know, folded her arms. And she was born an adult, by the way. Uh, She was always an adult. And she looked at me and she said, Michelle, it's just another sunset. (laughs) She'd had it, you know, I mean, it was, you know, just, (laughs) why do we have to do this every night? You know, her mind, it was a, you know, her koan for sure. But um, I got that maybe it didn't, drop her out of the tenth floor (laughs) at all. She was lost in the uh, conditioned world of wanting to do normal things, except for uh, not being at the sunset every night. You know, so we can get a bit caught in any floor. So I was pretty caught in that level of reality, watching sunsets every night. We can get caught in any floor. So some people are really caught on the 10th floor. 
and they have no idea that there's another floor. A lot of the adult world is that. A lot of the metaphors for waking up in our spiritual life is around, you know, a little chick pecking out of the egg of imprisonment in the tenth floor, of being a separate self, of being identified with being separate. So however that is used, you know, the metaphors of a flower opening, a chick picking out of its shell, coming out of prison, are all about coming out of the relative level of uh, experience as the only floor. But what happens for people is that as they start to wake up to that, they start thinking that they have to reject that floor. But that floor is always happening. We, we not only don't have to reject it, we can't reject it. It's here, just like the unconditioned is always here whether we know it's there or not. And then there's all the floors in between. So maybe we could say the ninth floor, there's still a lot of solidity, there's still a lot of identification, attachment, aversion, delusion. The identification is still strong. Maybe the eighth, seventh, sixth floor, we start being able to understand physical matter, physical sensation is not as just leg or toe or arm and being so caught in the visual field of how a leg looks or how a body looks. But we start really being able to penetrate the experience directly. The attention can be within experience directly. Usually with the eyes closed helps at first. And we start seeing that what we thought the world was and was so solid, isn't as solid at all. We start maybe starting to get a difference between the knower and the known. What is knowing heat versus heat? We start seeing that thoughts and emotions are more like uh, the weather coming and going. The fifth floor the identification is really loosened. There's more spaciousness. Joy and sorrow can sometimes be more intense. Things are arising and passing away. When I was talking about the energy body and the question and answer period the other morning, this is often when we really, um, if our eyes are closed in meditation, we often peek to see if our body really looks like that. You know, we'll be sitting there and it, the body is appearing so different than what it usually appears to be that initially we'll be going. <laughs> and then we check to make sure we go back to the relative level because it's always there to feel more secure. It's like, is this really what's happening? And then we'll close our eyes and go, oh, okay. And we can shift back to the energy body like that because it's always there. It's much less solid, and it can shift from a sense of earth, air, fire, and water, you know, coming and going, to much less solid than that. But this is where the wiring starts to appear, the karmic knots. You know, if you've been sitting for 10 or 20 years, you know what I mean, because the places where we say, well, that place still is tight. You know, when we say, well, that place is still happening, that means that it's an old karmic friend. Sometimes we have things that stay with the body for a lifetime. In that energy body, is that okay? Wiring, electricity. If you see that the lights are on in this hall, uh, you might not see the wires. But when this place was built, Behind the walls, you'll see the wiring. When we come into this world, when we take birth, when we're conceived, there'll be a karmic wiring that we come in with the first few years of life. That wiring is set. When we shift into more of the fifth floor, we become more aware of the wiring. We can get attached or aversive, or if there's no attachment or aversion present, 
there'll be a feeling of a lot of shifting, transforming. We see how the mind affects the body. The more still the mind is, the more healing it is for the body. And there's a sense in which as we shift floors, the the mind gets purer the less reactive we get. The less reactive we get, the more energy we have. When we start going into third floor, second floor, sometimes there's no sense of solidity of the body. It's just a feeling of shifting, dissolving. The body and mind can be very, very light. First floor, the mindfulness and equanimity are really pure. This is deeply healing, but it's not healing on the level that we would get attached to. It's like there's no sense of trying to get rid of anything or get anything. There's no resistance to anything whatsoever. So one can understand in this deeper floor uh, that the purification is so much about the mind. There's no attachment to the body healing at this level. No floor, unconditioned. Any identification with any floor of reality, any floor of the elevator, is dukkha. Sometimes I think that different traditions get caught on different floors. (laughs) So an identification with a relative level or the absolute level is suffering. What is important is that we realize that awakening can happen on any floor. We don't have to be on the third floor to be awakened. We can be on the tenth floor. And so often in practice, when we have a taste, if we've only tasted the ninth floor, we can start thinking that the tenth floor isn't a good place to get enlightened or awaken or die for our freedom. And that's not true. For those of us that are leaving after six weeks, it would be a tragic thing if that were true. Because we're going out to a lot of the tenth floor. So all levels of reality are, pre- are present each moment. As one practices more, there's a more fluidity and freedom between the floors. And the less attached we are, the more accessible they are, and the more fun it is. So learning skillful means, skillfulness, or even right effort, is applying skillful means according to which floor of the elevator we're on. If we're low energy and asleep, there's not as much possibility for mindfulness or concentration. We're more vulnerable to the hindrances, and we're usually closer to the top floor. Is that okay? And when we're more awake and the practice is more effortless, and the more we can access the lower floors, we have higher energy, we're more secluded because we're more concentrated, we're less vulnerable to the hindrances. Is that okay? Do we get attached? We can get attached or aversive to any floor. We're kind of funny. And then sometimes if we dip down into the lower floors, we can get attached to no floor (laughs) or the first floor. It's just so funny how we can get so lost in the elevator. So it's important to know that if we're attached or aversive to any floor, it's just wanting or it's just aversion. And if we're lost in wanting or aversion, we're back on the ninth floor. We can do that in a second. We can go from the first floor to the ninth floor by looking at the snow and getting lost in a memory like that. So one of the wonderful things about the way that a Vipassana retreat is organized or scheduled is that we're usually going to hit all the floors. 
or we'll touch into a lot of them in the course of days or years. Because the practice isn't just about peak experiences. It's a long, long day. And there are many years. So why don't we just practice when it's easy or when we're high energy? Would that be freedom? Would that be really willing to die for our freedom? And this is so easy to forget. You know, it's so easy to get identified with the easy, high-energy times. So mostly we start to see over the course of day after day and year after year of a schedule is that we're learning that it's about getting liberated on whatever floor we are on. And that going through the course of high energy, low energy, day after day, purifies our motivation. It's like we're undressing how life really is. If we're honest, and the motivation is clear, we'll start to learn to be liberated with every movement, every posture, every frustration, with pride, with boredom, with sleep, with metta, with mindfulness. And this isn't easy for us. Understanding life deeply, understanding birth and death, and all aspects of life, are why a retreat is designed the way it is, in this way. Sometimes people will come into an interview and report calm. And usually I'll know that at some point a storm will be coming. And people tend to think that the calm is good, that the storms aren't so good. But being shaken up in, in practice is very important. I've had a student in Hawaii that... Um, has never had the opportunity to come to a retreat, but he's really put his time in over the years um, with checking in with his daily practice, and he's deepened a lot over the years. Uh, And until recently, I didn't know what he did for a living. Uh, And this year, he came in to see me and was very shaken up. And I'd never seen him shaken up. He'd never talked about anything but kind of the, you know, the breath or hearing. Uh, That was the extent of our conversations. So this day he came in, uh, and it turns out that he's a forensic psychiatrist, and he mostly interviews mass murderers. He travels around the country. He's a specialist in that area. Um, And so he had just been interviewing somebody right uh, before he came to see me that had just recently done one of those wonderful mass murders. So he um, told me about what it's like to do this kind of interview because it's very similar to what we ask you in your interviews. Uh, It's really interesting. It's like each time you go through a round, you know, it's like you get a little bit closer about, well, what were you feeling when you came up to this person? And then you go through it again, you break it down, and you break it down, and you break it down, and you break it down. Well, what were you feeling when you were moving toward this person? And break it down into more mind moments. And he said that, you know, that's the way you usually um, find out what's really been happening with someone who's done something like that. And he said that This person, um, no matter how much he tried to get into the mind moments, it was the way he would describe his experience was just like somebody describing buying a banana or going in and just looking at some oranges in a store. There was absolutely no affect. There was no remorse. There was no feeling. Absolutely no feeling. And he came in to see me, and he was so freaked out. 
that this person had just murdered a lot of people and there was no feeling. It was like he'd n he's had a lot of experience over years and he's never run into anyone like this. And it took me a whole hour with him just to kind of bring him into some semblance of okayness. He was so shaken up by this person not being shaken up. Now, as a teacher, I know that in your practice, you'll go from periods of being calm to being shaken up. If you think that the calm periods are the good practice and the being shaken up are the bad practice, I want to assure you that it's wrong view. <laughs> being shaken up is good. Being willing to face our suffering is how we learn. Remorse is essential. This is part of being willing to die for our freedom. It's being willing to go through the storms. One of the first times when I was on retreat, I went through this and it was really hard for me. And it was at a time in my practice that I didn't understand the relationship between an unpleasant feeling and if one isn't mindful of it, that it can lead to aversion. And I've shared with you some uh, this story before, but it, it's quite extreme. So um, I think you can appreciate <laughs> that it shook me up. Uh, there was a time where I did one of my first longer retreats. I think it was my first longer retreat here at IMS. I'd done a two-week retreat that I was on staff uh, and came after that to do a longer retreat. I think it was six weeks. And one of my teachers told me to go in my room and not come out um, for a week, which was odd. Uh, and it created this kind of pressure cooker that I wasn't quite ready for. Uh, I didn't understand aversion at all, aversion, aversion to unpleasantness. So I want to give you that warning when I tell you the story. So I'm in my room, and the pressure is just building and building, because I love to go out in nature as a kind of balance, and I wasn't getting any space. Uh, so at nighttime, there was a, a person who was in the room next to me that snored so loudly. I mean, it was just incredibly loud. And one night went by, two nights went by. And I was kind of afraid to leave my room because I was afraid I'd get caught. So one night, about 2 in the morning, I just felt like I was murderous rage with the snoring. So I snuck out, and I went outside. And I was so overly sensitized at this point with no equanimity whatsoever. I was open. But, and I could hear some cows mooing. And I could, it was feeling like the sound was just going through my body and ripping me to shreds. So I was like, oh boy, this isn't a refuge like it used to be. I was kind of altered. I went back in my room, and the snoring started again. And I was sitting there, <laughs> and I knew where this person's head was by the sound of the uh, snoring. And I took my bench, and I just smashed it <laughs> against the place where her head was. And the snoring stopped. <laughs> and I had this incredible ambivalence about, you know, well, I was so happy, you know, that the sound stopped, but I just felt horrible, you know, just horrible. I had so much remorse, uh, and I didn't understand. And I was humiliated. I felt terrible. But the snoring had stopped, so I started sitting again, kind of happily. And then the sound of the heat went on. And I was so aversive again. It was so unpleasant. I didn't understand. And it was probably November. And I went around IMS, and I turned off the heat. I had all the <laughs> thermostats. And then I kind of looked out of my room that morning, and people, I could, you know, people could see their breath, and they had their coats on. And I had another one of those moments of remorse. <laughs> like, I had had a couple good hours, but um, you know, there was just that horror. And that's what woke me up. It was really painful. It was horrific. And I got so motivated, that remorse, 
motivated me so deeply to try to understand oppression, inner oppression, and what leads people to do outer oppression. You know, what is aversion? How do we do these things? There's a great naturalist, John Muir, who said that he would tie himself to a tree during an intense thunderstorm so that he could really experience a storm. And in a way, that's so wonderful. Um, But on a retreat, we don't need to do that. On a retreat, we're kind of like tied to the tree. We'll go through the calm periods. We'll go through the storms. And if we're really motivated to understand what freedom is, what suffering is, and if we're willing to die for our freedom, we'll get to know and taste and be so deeply touched by the universe that we will deeply understand. And that includes all experience. It includes all the, all the layers of reality, all the floors. So please remember that whether we're in retreat or out of retreat, each moment there's a possibility of being free, of waking up. It's not dependent on what's happening. I'd like to um, ask everyone to recommit to a silence. I think this, at this point in the retreat, there can be a way in which we all don't hold the container for each other. And it's so important. You know, if you are leaving, you have to remember that there are people here that are staying and that the silence is um, part of the commitment. It's part of what holds the container and holds the trust. This week can be a little bumpy for those of us who stay or those of us who leave. You know, it's like we have become family. And it's um, kind of beyond us. It just happens, being in silence together and going through so much together. Uh, So 37 people are leaving. That's a lot, a lot of family to come and go. And then... I think maybe 35 are coming, so the whole new fam is coming, you know, who we don't know. Uh, So the week can have its bumps. And one way that it uh, is less bumpy is by holding the container of the silence. And to remember that um, we're here to learn. You know, that's what we're doing here, whether we leave or stay. And in terms of the levels of reality, of course, when we come into a retreat, we are saying that we want to explore all the levels and that we really value solitude. We really value depth of practice, know that we really value exploring all the layers of reality And hopefully we know that we can bring that out with us. Ultimately, what we're doing is trying to see through the one who sees. We're just seeing through the one who sees. So I'd like to um, end with a poem by Lee Poe. In this translation, it's Lee Pai, but it, I used to know him as Lee Po. And it's called Answering a Question in the Mountains. You ask me why I chose these hills. Lost in thought, I smile 
and don't answer. Peach petals in the stream lead into the distance. There's another world beyond the world of man. It's really important to remember that there is other floors, that there are other floors, that there is an absolute level as well as a relative level, and that we can cultivate that whether we're in retreat or out of retreat. You know, that's what we're doing here. So let's sit for a few minutes. to um, thank you for your commitment to being willing to die for your freedom. It's just been a wonderful uh, time with you. So thank you. It's a noble thing to die while you're meditating. 